Hello and welcome to the Informed Traveler podcast, part of the Informed Traveler radio show, heard each week on Chorus Radio. It's a travel podcast where our goal is to help you become a more informed traveler. And I'm your host, Randy Sharman. So if you thought last year was a horrible year for the airline industry, you'd be absolutely correct. So in a few moments, we're going to talk about that with the folks from IATA, the International Air Transport Association, plus learn a little bit about IATA's Travel Pass Initiative. It's where travelers can get all the info they need so that they know they are meeting all the COVID-19 entry requirements by governments. Plus, Booking.com recently came out with the results of their survey on the most welcoming places in Canada, so we'll learn more about that. And in honor of Black History Month this month, we're going to replay an interview we had a while back, before the pandemic hit actually, with the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. But as I mentioned, we're going to start things out talking with IATA, the International Air Transport Association, about just how horrible last year was for the airline industry. Plus, we're going to learn a little bit about IATA's Travel Pass Initiative. So to explain further, we're joined now by Marcus Rudiger. He is the Assistant Director of Corporate Communications for IATA. Their website is IATA. Dot org. Hi, Marcus. Yeah, hi. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. I guess uh, when you look on your website, some of the press, press releases, one that stands out that really is no surprise, though, uh, 2020, one of the, well, the worst year on history for the airlines. How bad was it, though? Like, if, if you drew a graph, uh, you would really notice uh, the drop, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, I, I think there's no hiding the fact that more or less since the beginning of civil aviation, um, I mean, we've never seen uh, such a crisis, uh, such a drop in, in demand. I mean, just looking at some of the figures, um, so if we look at the full year 2020, um, the demand globally was down about 65.9% as compared to 2019. So I think that just gives you an idea it's basically the sharpest uh, traffic fall or decline that we've had in our history of uh, civil aviation. I was more surprised at the fact that it wasn't worse. I was thinking maybe 90%, but uh, that's a huge number. Uh, where do we go from here, though? Well, what, what is it that ideally IATA would like to see uh, governments do? Um, yeah, so before we get into that, I think just because you, you said an interesting thing, you thought it would even be worse. And uh, if we look back a bit into 2019, uh, some of the things that we saw was that there was, especially during the Northern Hemisphere summer months, we did see an uptake, uh, especially sort of in, in Europe when travel restrictions were relaxed. Um, you know, don't forget there are some very important large domestic markets, uh, which of course include Canada, the U.S., Brazil, Australia, China, um, and those more or less maintained some of their traffic. Of course, they were also down, but not as bad as, let's say, international travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, and then, you know, where do we go from here? Well, you know, what we've been seeing recently is that um, governments globally have tightened uh, travel restrictions, uh, mainly in response to the new variants of COVID-19 that are out there. And from an industry perspective, of course, this is not helping our recovery, but we do understand uh, the need for governments to deal uh, with the pandemic first and foremost. But what we really need governments to do is, is to work with the industry to then 
you know, when the time comes that travel restrictions can be relaxed, that we can restart in a sort of um, yeah, coordinated fashion across the globe, because that is, is going to be essential, especially on sort of you know, sharing um, testing certificates mm-hmm. or vaccination certificates, just making sure that all the requirements that travelers will have to comply with going forward, um, that these are well known, that uh, the airlines can abide by those, and that the travelers have all the you know, all the documents that they need, and that you know, the governments will have trust in each other that those documents are bona fide, correct, and valid. Well, it would make sense that everyone's on the same page. Uh, one of the uh, initiatives that IATA has is uh, called the Travel Pass Initiative. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, as, as I've just said, the, you know, we do see the need for a standardized way of handling a lot of the, the, the data that is, is necessary uh, to enable travel uh, once restrictions come down and, and borders reopen. And Travel Pass will be the, say, technological backbone that um, airlines, governments, airports uh, can use to make sure that um, you know, data that could include uh, COVID testing certificates, it could include vaccination certificates, can actually uh, you know, travel down the, the data chain where needed. Um, but actually remain in the hands of the the actual traveler. So the the app as such would host the data on people's uh, mobile device, and it would then be the passenger who would be enabled to share the data uh, with the relevant authorities that actually need the data. So it actually the the the, the data remains on your device and is not stored in either a government system or an airline system or anywhere else. It's actually, you keep your own data. Um, We will just enable the, let's say, communication with those entities that will actually require that um, for you to travel. Mm -hmm. Kind of smooth out the whole process. Uh, People can find lots of information uh, about that initiative and the airlines in general on their website, iata.org. And Marcus Rudiger is the Assistant Director of Corporate Communications with IATA, the the International Air Transport Association. Uh, Thank you for your insight and your time, Marcus. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Randy. Have a good day. Well, Booking.com recently came out with the results of their survey on the most welcoming places in Canada. So here to explain further about their top 10 list of welcoming places is Adriana Mantia. She is the Regional Director for Canada at Booking.com. Hi, Adriana. Hi, Randy. Happy to be here again. Tell me about the most welcoming places in Canada, a list of 10 of the most welcoming places in Canada that Booking.com did a uh, review about. I would think just about everywhere in the world would say that they're welcoming. But in terms of this survey, how would you define what a welcoming place is? Great question. So most welcome places in Canada, uh, it's determined by the places that had the biggest percentage of total eligible 
properties winning a Booking.com Traveler Review Award. What is amazing about this reward, uh, Randy, is that this reward is basically given by customers. So it's based on the customer experience that they had when they went to these properties. So they had to stay in these properties and they review how they felt. And as you know, the properties are a very important part of the experience in, in traveling. Well, for sure, I was thinking about that. You know, if you're going to be a welcoming place, it puts a lot of pressure on the people that work at the accommodations that people go to, because that's the first people they see, right? Exactly, and what we have been seeing that in Canada, um, basically, these awards were done and were highlighting staff. They were highlighting cleanliness, and they were highlighting uh, the location of these places. So, as you said, staff was the first thing that people recommend. Cool. So it's the reviewers themselves that are that are doing the recommendations here. Let's go down the list. I've looked at uh, the 10 that are on here. I've been to five of them, so that's not too bad. But Niagara-on-the-Lake, I haven't been to. That's listed as number one. Yes, Niagara-on-the-Lake uh, had a lot of reviews and amazing reviews. Then we went to St. John, uh, Banff, Golden, Jasper, Charlottetown, Uki, Halifax, Nanaimo, and Lamobi. Okay, let's uh, break it down a little bit. So let's talk a little bit about Niagara-on-the-Lake and, and maybe some of the accommodations that people love there. Well, Niagara-on-the-Lake, as, as you can see, is a wine region, very boutique hotels uh, that were amazing. And uh, here we can see that uh, bed and breakfast play a great part. Something that we are also seeing around here is that 17% of the awards that were the most valuable were for cleanliness. And what we're seeing is now that we have, um, I don't know if you knew, but in Booking now we have a filter that tells us about additional health and safety measures. So in those places, we saw that that was vital for having a, a great review. Oh, I think so, uh, especially uh, during this pandemic and anybody uh, staying at a hotel, that would be the number one thing that they're looking at. Uh, I would think by now, uh, almost a year into uh, our pandemic or just over a year into it, depending on how you want to measure it, uh, most hotels have pretty much got it down pat, and I would think most people would probably uh, think that they've they've got whatever uh, restrictions or, or uh, cleanliness uh, protocols in there. They're pretty good at it right now. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in business anymore, right? Exactly, and I think there also the staff plays a very important part because also we are all trying to accommodate to new protocols that for a long time years uh, they were not used in the tourism industry and in the properties. So I think the, the staff has also played a big part in order to be able to change the protocols and that people feel good with them and that they can feel reinforced that they have the health and safety measures. Also, we are seeing that they are accommodating to have also workspaces. So the staff has done an amazing, uh, amazing job, and I think it's really reflected in the awards that we're having this, uh, this year. Mm-hmm. People can find this list, by the way, on the Booking.com website, and that's one of the good things. You go through the, uh, the list of the top ten and then uh, kind of give a, a suggestion on uh, the place of the accommodations that uh, came out, ranked out pretty good. Uh, tell me a little bit about you, Colette, uh, if I pronounce that correctly, I hope, uh, the, um, the accommodations there. So uh, the accommodations there uh, have, have been also like amazing. Uh, we see, for example, here we have the Pluvio restaurant and rooms. So we see it's a small four boutique hotel. So it's very known on site. And they also, something that has been also very nice is that the restaurant is also a very important part. Uh, and the food, the gastronomical part of us uh, traveling more local. Uh, has also been very good match for the for the experience that they're having. 
And what does this say in general, other than uh, cleanliness, what, people, what kind of accommodations uh, people are looking for? So there are like two, two things that I would like to highlight. First is like the property type. So people are looking for hotels, bed and breakfast. But we're also seeing a lot of apartment, holiday homes. And also we're seeing a good movement in motors. Um, so those are the things that people are looking for. But one of the things that we can also see is that they want to be in places that they can be in touch with nature. So when I see location... Location, for example, we're seeing that it's near a lake, it's near a mountain. So now nature has also been playing a big part. So places where people can find good outdoors, and it's easy to, to go to those places from the property that they are choosing. When people are looking for apartment-style accommodation, is that a result of you know, people also uh, looking at Airbnbs and those types of things? Uh, it's the hotel industry answering to the uh, needs of, the, of clients looking uh, that way? Yes, I think that what we have been seeing is that there are multiple guests with different type of uh, of needs uh, that they want to fulfill. So some of them prefer hotels uh, in the way that they can also have like a, a service, something that uh, they know that all the protocols have been doing. For example, people that go to apartments maybe because they want to stay a long time and they want a kitchen. Uh, but, for example, something that we have been seeing a lot is that people are also creating a lot for resorts. The type of resorts that we have in Canada is that where they can have, like, a good space when, uh, where they can have activities nearby, where they maybe can be a lakefront and there are activities in the lake. Or, for example, in the moment of now that we are in winter, that they can do some uh, skating, some going down, going down the hill. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like also the activities and the resorts have been very well known in, in this new era. Yeah, I guess uh, people are kind of looking for best of both worlds, uh, where they have their own little kitchenette, they can uh, cook their own breakfast or meals if they wanted to, but they can also uh, access some of the restaurants and, and other uh, amenities close by too, right? Exactly. Anything I've missed? I think that the travel awards are great and seeing these properties. One of the things that we keep seeing is that people keep daydreaming of traveling. So this, these awards are really good uh, to keep dreaming. And uh, the properties, as we spoke before, are essential part of the dreaming of the trip, of dreaming of the experience. So uh, I hope these uh, awards and uh, recognizing these properties also play a big part of wishing and keep wishing that we can travel again and uh, that for the summer, we are already like looking at these destinations and uh, destinations that are well uh, rewarded uh, for the job that they are doing and uh, that we are part of this daydreaming and still of traveling. Well, yeah, if we can't travel, we can always dream about it, right? Uh, Adriana Mantia is uh, Regional Manager for Canada with Booking.com. You can find the uh, list of the most welcoming places in Canada on their website, Booking.com. Uh, thanks for your time, uh, Adriana. Pre- appreciate it. Thanks to you, Randy. Well, February is Black History Month, so in honor of that, I thought we'd go back and replay a conversation we had before the pandemic hit. It's with Dr. Noelle Trent. She is the Director of Interpretation, Collections, and Education at the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel, located in Memphis, Tennessee. And she talks a little bit about the history of the museum and what a typical tour entails, plus how the Lorraine Motel fits in with the 
National Civil Rights Museum. So here is that conversation for you now. Tell me uh, a little bit of background on the Civil Rights Museum. I understand it's been around since 1991. So tell me a bit of a background on why the site was chosen where it is. So the National Civil Rights Museum is located in Memphis, Tennessee, and it opened in 1991. Now, we are located in the historic Lorraine Motel. Now, the Lorraine Motel was purchased in 1945 by an African-American couple, Walter and Lori Bailey. Uh, They were a business couple, and they opened up the hotel uh, for an African-American audience uh, because in the segregated South, In the United States, uh, Jim Crow was the standard practice, and so there were very few places where African Americans could stay uh, in Memphis. And so people like Aretha Franklin, Sam Cooke, um, a number of notables actually stayed here in the hotel. Wilson Pickett's song, uh, Wait Till the Midnight Hour, was actually recorded or written here in the motel. So it has a long history before it even became known as a place where Dr. King was assassinated. Mm-hmm. And he was killed here on the balcony of the motel in front of room 306 on April 4th, uh, 1968. So there's more to it than just the Lorraine Hotel. I'm looking on your website and there's a, you know, sort of a map mm-hmm. there. So there's, there's that part of it. There's uh, the exhibits part of it. So there, there's different uh, areas of the museum now, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So the museum opened to the public in 1991. The community came together to save the building to make sure that it wasn't demolished because they viewed this as being a very significant part of uh, American history. And um, then in 2014, we uh, renovated the museum. We did $27.5 million renovation. So we have 24 galleries, uh, all discussing the history of the African-American civil rights movement. So we start off in our first gallery talking about slavery, the Middle Passage, just to give people an idea that this notion of resistance and standing up for your rights, uh, uh, claiming your civil and human rights, doesn't mysteriously just happen in the 1940s and 50s. That This is something that is very intrinsic to the human experience. And then we take people through uh, Jim Crow during the 19th century, through the 1940s and 50s, and then walk through some really key uh, moments in the civil rights movement, everything from the landmark case, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, which eliminated segregation and education in the United States, to the famous Montgomery bus boycott where Rosa Parks uh, started by refusing to give up her seat on a segregated bus in Montgomery, Alabama, to the Selma and Montgomery march, uh, to black power. So we cover all aspects of it and have some great interactives, great audio, great video, uh, visuals for people to um, engage with. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, obviously Dr. King is a central figure around there, but uh, there is much more to the muse- museum, as you mentioned. How long would it take to, to see everything uh, through all the uh, sites and, and exhibits? Well, you know, to visit the museum, we generally say give yourself at least two hours. Um you know, I would advise more than that because what a lot of people discover is that they get so uh, enthralled in what they're seeing that before they know it, they, they've spent 40 minutes and they've only been through the first 
three galleries, and mm-hmm. they've got about 19 more to go. Uh, so we definitely say make sure that this is part of a significant part of your day, and it's a great experience. Uh, we encourage people to come set aside your day. We're located in downtown Memphis, so it's a great walk. There's wonderful restaurants and things around us. You get the real historic feel of the city. Well, it must be quite an experience. Uh, give me some feedback on you know, what people say after they visited uh, the museum. Oh, they say, <laughs> it's funny, you, you hear so many different um, reactions to the museum. A number of people say, I never knew this history. I never knew uh, what the struggle was like, and they're very humbled uh, by what they've learned. Uh, people who lived during that time period come in and say that uh, we got the story right, and um, they're very appreciative of what we've done. A lot of people just appreciate how much we've opened up our eyes, and quite a few people come in and they say, I'm coming back, or I'm bringing friends, or I'm bringing families. We've had a number of VIPs that we've given tours to who say, you know what, I've got to bring my kids, or I've got to bring my parents. They they are always bringing people back. So there's something about what we do here that really speaks uh, to people, and and you can kind of see it as people, you see people enter and exit the museum, uh, particularly when you get to the King Room, because we have set up the room as it would have looked uh, right before Dr. King uh, passed away. It's It hits you the first time you see it. It's quite a powerful moment. It's one thing to learn about the man, and it's another thing to see where he died. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I would think be so. Be there and encounter that, yeah. Uh, so we, we, I think we change people uh, for the better. The Lorraine Motel itself, what happened after uh, Dr. King was assassinated? Was it closed, or what happened between the, the gap between then and when the uh, museum opened? So that's a very interesting story. The, muse- uh, the Lorraine Motel actually continues to operate. Uh, Mrs. Lori Bailey actually suffered a stroke in the chaotic hours after Dr. King's assassination and had to be taken to the hospital, and she passed away uh, about three, three to four days later um, and uh, died. So Mr. Bailey is a widow at that point and uh, continues to operate the hotel. Um, the hotel does go into a decline, and by the mid to late 1980s, um, it's either going into bankruptcy and, and people are talking about demolishing it. It's in a great location downtown, so there were talks of um, putting up something different. And uh, the community really came together and said, absolutely not. We want to preserve this. This is a, a, a tremendously important historical moment in American and global history. And so there were some community leaders who came together. They set up drives. People donated uh, coins and money, and they were able to purchase the building and uh, did an agreement with the uh, state of Tennessee so that the state of Tennessee actually owns this building and the museum uh, will exist in this building. And the agreement is, is that as long as the museum exists, we are allowed to use the building to uh, help tell this story. Well, it sounds like it would be an incredible experience. One who is a history buff and, and likes that sort of stuff, uh, I would be very excited to see it. So it's the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. The website civilrightsmuseum.org. And Dr. Noelle Trent is the Director of Interpretation Collections and Education for the Civil Rights Museum. I uh, thank you for your time, Dr. Trent. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. 
And that is this week's Informed Traveller podcast. Remember, this is the podcast version of the Informed Traveller radio show heard each week on Chorus Radio. You can find more information on the show at our website at theinformedtraveller.ca. So thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, let us know. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. And if you want to drop me a line, my email is randy at theinformedtraveler.ca. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash informedtraveler. Or you can follow me on Twitter at informedtraveler.com.